But if you've got your Bibles, if you want to try and turn to Psalm 45, if you've got a church Bible or a standard kind of ESV Bible, it should be on page 471, I hope. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong. So if we turn to Psalm 45, and we're continuing our summer sermon series through some particular psalms. And the psalms that we've picked, they all very clearly talk about who the Messiah is. And our psalm today is no different. We're going to see very clearly Jesus in this psalm. So let's read it together. Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever. To the choir master, according to lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many-coloured robes, she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let me pray again before we go into it. Father, thank you for your word, for all that you say to us and teach us in there. I pray now that you'd help us to continue in our worship as we spend time thinking on and meditating on what you have for us this afternoon. 
Jesus, what we really want is to grasp more of who you are and your glory. We want to be able to behold your face and to just see you on the throne and marvel at who you are. So Holy Spirit, help us to understand. I pray that you would stir up our hearts as well, that we would have affection for Jesus and that we would be drawn to lives that live in light of the reality of his throne. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's quite fitting to look at the Psalms in the summer because summer is a really good time for songs, I think, isn't it? Of having music on and there's always a competition, I think, in the charts of who's going to be the number one. And this song also seems quite fitting because in that subtitle there at the very top, we heard that this is meant to be according to lilies. So it's probably the tune of the song. It's meant to be a kind of tune that reminds us of flowers. And we also see there in the subtitle that it is a love song. And that actually makes it unique among all of the Psalms because it's the only Psalm to be listed as a love song. And the Psalmist does start straight away jumping in of how his heart has been affected by what he's been looking at. He writes at the very beginning, my heart overflows. He can't help but burst out in song for what he's been feeling with what he's been looking at. And what is it that he's going to sing about? Well, it's not going to be about something flowery or about summer weather. But he addresses his song to the king. The king who is worthy of all praise and of all songs. And we're going to see that the aim of this song is in verse 15 that we would join in with verse 15. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. That's what we're being asked to draw towards as we hear this song. And so the psalmist's tongue is ready to sing. And ready to sing like what? You might expect like an, an instrument or something like that. But he says his tongue is ready to sing like a pen which is a bit of an odd saying. I don't think Matty would be impressed if you tell him after the service, Matty, you just sounded just like a pen. That was great. <laughs> but you see, what is a scribe's pen like? It is meticulous, purposeful, accurate, detailed. The song's not going to be an empty, flowery song, despite the tune. It's going to be rich and true and detailed. And that's what we want to be like at Liberty Church as well. You might have noticed below the lyrics of the songs, we have scripture references because we don't want to sing something that just sounds good. We want to sing something that is true and rich and theological. And so we align very much then with the psalmist in that sense. So then the psalmist turns in verse two to directly address the king and says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. There's no beauty like there is in King Jesus. In the Hebrew, that word handsome is literally beautiful, beautiful. Because in Hebrew, there's no punctuation and it's got limited vocabulary. So to emphasize something, they repeat. This king is beautiful, beautiful. And the beauty, it's not in his appearance. We're not going to hear anything in the psalm about what he looks like. And we know from elsewhere that there's nothing in the Messiah to physically draw us to him. 
But his beauty is in his character and his deeds and his essence, the very essence of who he is. And there at the end of verse two, we see for the first time of this psalm, there's going to be three times we'll see this, that this is a king who is forever. So here in verse two, he is blessed forever. He's really not a normal king. A normal king in a normal kingdom reaches a certain end point. But this king is one who goes on forever and ever. So it's very clear that this song is about the Messiah, the promised one. The, po- the one who at this point in time as the psalm was being written that they were waiting for. This psalm was written at least hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. Some people think even before that, even up to a thousand years before. So they were there waiting for this king. And as we start to see this king, he's not wearing a flower crown and lounging about in the summer. This king here is in verse three, a call to strap on a sword and to arise in his might with all the splendor and majesty of one who conquers and rules. And so we're going to hear this call, enter the palace of the king. That's where this psalm is leading us to. But this king is strapping on a sword. And you see, the palace of this king, it's not open to everyone. These days, it's quite easy to go visit a palace. Has anyone visited a palace before? No, I thought people might have done. I thought people might have even done it this summer. But I visited quite a few palaces before. It's very easy. All you do is go to a window, buy a ticket, and then queue up. Sometimes you queue for many, many hours, like in Versailles. Um, but then you get into the palace. So you can go visit a palace very easily. You can even go visit Buckingham Palace when the king is not actively using it for state affairs. In the summer months, you can buy a ticket and go in and see it. But in the past, when the kings and queens had real political power, when they weren't just figureheads, but they were really the rulers, you couldn't just get into the palace. You could only go into the palace where the king and queen resided if you had a personal invitation from the royal family. It's not a place you can just approach. And so it is with the palace of this king. You can't buy a ticket. And in fact, it's actually worse than that. By nature and choice, we are all the king's enemies. And there is a day coming, we've been told, when Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming back as a baby in swaddling cloths again. But he is then coming on the clouds and with the sword. He's coming to judge the world and his ride for judgment will be like in verse four of this psalm with truth, meekness and righteousness. No one's going to be able to hide because he knows the truth. There's no pretending that you haven't done certain things or haven't thought certain things because he knows the truth. And institutions and rulers who have built their platform on lies will be brought down in an instant. And then he rides out as well in righteousness, because this king is holy and perfect. And so he is going to give perfect judgment at the end of things. And we see from the psalm that what happens at the end of things is that people will fall under the king. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's no escaping from this ride. Everyone's either going to bow 
in the palace of the king to a beloved ruler or meeting him on the battlefield and meeting his sword and his arrows and finding destruction. So that's the real question is, are you going to seek to enter the palace of the king? And then when we get to verse six, we're starting to see what this king is like when he's on his throne. And there's a real shift in the song because the psalmist lifts up this victorious king and declares him as God. God on the throne forever and ever. And in verse seven, we see something that sounds kind of strange. We read, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. It sounds like a bit of a strange verse. But what's happening here is that this is a very Trinitarian verse. Anyone who says that there's no sign in the Old Testament of three persons in one God is ignoring some scriptures like this. Because what we have here is we have God the Father anointing God the Son. And who is Christ anointed with? Well, we know that in his ministry, he was equipped by the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father anointing God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8 then, we see this beautiful anointed king dressed in robes which are exuding a wonderful fragrance. A fragrance of myrrh and aloes and cassia. These are really strong smelling scents. Myrrh is a kind of sap from a tree that's got antiseptic properties. I've never smelt it before, but I imagine it smells, you know, kind of antiseptic and medicinal. And then aloes, they're those kind of succulent plants, things like aloe vera, where you squeeze out the sap. Some of us might have used aloe vera moisturizer after a sunburn this summer. We kind of know that smell of aloes, aloe vera. And then cassia. Cassia is very similar to cinnamon. It's like a sweet smelling bark off of a tree. So there's this kind of medicinal, sweet, sell it, sweet, sweet smelling fragrance to this king. But we're not told this just so that we know he has nice perfume. We're told this because the fragrance actually should remind us of some other things. And it doesn't really befit a king who's on the throne at the height of his power because those spices are actually the smell of anointing for a tomb. Because you see, the work of the king is that he's going to be born into the world fully man, fully God. And he is going to live in a way that is filled with truth and meekness and righteousness, just like this psalm says. Where he's not going to seize political power. He's not going to look for a platform for himself. He's not going to look for an earthly throne, but he's going to become the least and become a servant. And he's also going to be righteous, that he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to be the only one who never breaks God's law. And despite this perfect life, he's going to be taken, stripped, beaten, 
marched up a hill and nailed to a cross. He's going to die even though he doesn't deserve it. And he's going to take the sin of the world upon himself. He was anointed for this very moment, commissioned for it. And we know that he went in anguish. He asked the father, if you can remove this cup from me. But he went in the end with gladness amongst his companions. Again, from our psalm. Because it was for his people that he would die. So he went with gladness. And he's going to be taken down off that cross and anointed with myrrh and aloes by Joseph of Arimathea. And he's not going to have kingly robes. He's going to have burial clothes that are saturated with burial spices. But we know from the psalm and from who Jesus is that Jesus is king forever. That Jesus is God. And so after three days, three days lying in the tomb with those burial spices, he then rose again in victory as the victorious king that we've read about. His destination wasn't the grave, but was above, at the right hand of the Father. And in his life, his resurrection life, then all his people can enter in with him. So the psalmist is writing here, hundreds of years before this will happen, prophesying about what will happen. And for us, it happened 2,000 years ago. So it's an event from 2,000 years ago, and this psalm is from even longer ago. But the glorious work of this king is for you today. Because if you put your faith in him, then you're united with him, and his death was for you, and his life is yours. And how can we share in what he's done? Well, the other thing the fragrance reminds us of is the anointing oil used in the temple for anointing the priests. So they had an oil infused with myrrh and cassia, and it was reserved just for anointing the priests. In fact, they were told that if anyone just tries to use it as a perfume, they should be cut off from the people. So it's very specifically for the priests. And what the priests used to do is they used to make sacrifices and go into the presence of God in the temple in order to make a way for the people to have a relationship and a link to God. And so King Jesus is fragrant with the smell of a priest. Jesus is high priest forever. And now he's the only one who perfectly mediates between us and God. Today, we don't have to go to a priest. We can go directly to Jesus because he's the one who's made the sacrifice with his own body and blood so that we would be able to come boldly to the throne of God. And so it's because this king is fragrant like the tomb and fragrant like a priest, that he has had the greatest victory. And so it leads us to verse 8 of the psalm, where there are ivory palaces for him with stringed instruments to make him glad. And in these ivory heavenly halls, there we read in verse 9, 
standing at his right hand, the right hand being the position of honor, is the queen. The queen dressed in gold, gold of Ophir. Ophir was just a port city that brought lots of imports and wealth through. So it just means very, very fine, pure gold. And this king being Jesus, we know that the bride of Christ is the church. So let's hear how the queen got here. And as we do that, we will see how it resembles Christ bringing the church to himself. So in verse 10, we start with a flashback to the greatest wedding that's ever taken place. We see how the queen came to the palace of the king. And it starts like this with a call to the woman. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. So remember back to the beginning, we said that we are all enemies of the king by nature and choice. Because what happened is that sin came in through Adam and all of us are descended from Adam. And our inheritance from that is a sin nature. You just have to look at a two-year-old to see that they don't have to learn how to sin. I'm seeing it now for the second time, (laughs) up close and personal, that it comes naturally to all of us. So the daughter of Adam here, or as in the people of Adam, us, that we must turn away and leave. And that's what it means to repent, actually, that word repent. It means to turn from sin towards something. And that person that you turn towards is Jesus. So if we look down to verse 11, we see how the relationship is going to start. She acknowledges that he is Lord and the woman bows down to him. That's how this relationship starts. The woman bows down to him, acknowledging him as Lord and she knows her position before the king and acknowledges who he is. If you want a relationship with Jesus, that's the starting point. You bow down to him as Lord, believing what he has done. And then what happens, what King Jesus does, is he transforms situations and transforms people. He turns things completely upside down. And there's a bit of a strange clue to that that you might not have picked up as we read through, which is verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. So what's going on here is that Tyre was a fortified city. It was on the Mediterranean coast, and it was the only fortified city that Joshua was not able to capture. So when the Israelites, when the Jews were going into the promised land and they were capturing cities and regions, as they were going north, Tyre then became a kind of northern boundary for Israel where they couldn't capture it. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that the people of Tyre were wicked people. We see that they brought idols into Israel and turned people away from God. And we also see, if you remember, when Nehemiah kind of rediscovered the scriptures, and he said, all right, everyone, we're going to keep the law of God, and we're going to keep things like the Sabbath. And at that point, we learn that the people of Tyre were the people that said, no, We're not going to do that. And Jesus used the people of Tyre as well as an example of people 
who um, were wicked people. And yet we read that the people of Tyre are going to bring gifts for the bride of the king. So people who are opposed to God are going to bring gifts to the queen. And we actually end up reading in Acts 21 that Paul stops off in Tyre in one of his journeys. And there he finds brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's a church in Tyre. And so these people have been God's enemies for thousands of years. And yet God has given them grace and brought about his people who he loves in that city. That God can bring peoples around. And if you want another quite amazing example, then you see in the, in the subtitle that this was a mascal of the sons of Korah. And if you've forgotten who Korah is and his sons, then you can go read Numbers 16 at some point and just see how they were a people opposed to God. And now they're writing this love song to the king. Recommended homework there. So then in verse 13, we see that this princess who has had to leave and forget her father's house, that she herself is transformed. We see that the, the princess, she now has these robes that are interwoven with gold and these multicolored robes. So she is being dressed in a beautiful arrangement. And that's what Jesus does for his people. He dresses us in his infinite perfectness, in his infinite righteousness, in his infinite glory. He gives to those who bow down to him pure robes interwoven with gold that are purchased by his blood. And, you know, we are so covered by Christ's righteousness that it even says in 2 Corinthians that we become the righteousness of God. That however broken and stained we are, however weak we are in ourselves, when God looks at us, he sees us as his own righteousness. That's how covered and how transformed we are by what Jesus gives to us. So if you don't feel like you're good enough to enter the palace of the king, then you have to know that it's not about you. It's not about how good you are. When we come to this table later, we come because, not because we're worthy to come to the table, but because we need to be covered by what Christ is offering us. We need his blood to wash us clean. We need the robes that he can give us. We are not good enough. So now once the bride is prepared and ready in her splendid robes, all radiant and beautiful, then she is led out to the king. And that's the moment we all wait for in a wedding, isn't it? When we're all sat there quiet and the groom is all nervous and excited and we're kind of watching the clock to see how late the bride's going to be. We're all waiting to see the bride. And when she enters, every eye in that room is going to be on that bride. As she comes in in her wedding gown, all with her veil and makeup and beautiful, everyone is going to behold her as she comes in. 
That's the moment that we're waiting for in the wedding. And then finally, we get to verse 15. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. With joy and gladness, that there is so much celebrating and exulting in that moment. And now we said at the beginning that we all start outside of that kingdom. And when we're outside the kingdom, we can be tempted to try and find our own joy and gladness. It's something that's built into the human heart to look around and try and find our own joy. And you can try and find it in anything, maybe just little details of life or the big things of life. But I don't know about you, but it seems like nothing seems to last, though, when we look outside of the kingdom. And it can be anything we look to. It could be things like work, relationships, or our homes. But we find that with work, that it gets stressful and difficult and situations come up. With relationships, it seems like they just get more and more baggage added to them and become strained and broken. And with our homes, we try to make them, you know, like a perfect place for us to, to kind of go back to. But it ends up with things like a broken boiler, a leaking roof, kids' fingerprints and crayons on the wall. The things break down. And whatever it might be, the things here and now, they were not designed to give us our ultimate joy. Because the truth is that we were all created for the palace of the king. The palace of the king where we see Jesus face to face, where he will meet all our needs and desires. And that is where we find true joy and true gladness that doesn't run out, doesn't get messed up, doesn't have moth and rust destroying. It's an ivory palace that lasts forever. And so as we go towards the palace of the king, the way that I was picturing it was um, when we were on holiday just a couple of weeks ago in France. There are lots and lots of castles in that region um, because it's kind of the area where the Hundred Years' War happened, so there are lots of battles. And these castles, or chateaus, as they call them in France, um, they tend to be built on the top of the hill because they're fortified, and that's the best position. So you have the chateau on the top of the hill with its towers and ramparts and with its halls. And then below that, the bottom of the cliffs, was normally the big stone merchant houses and monasteries. And then down the hill a bit further, and it's the kind of small little stone houses. And then the ramshackle stone houses. And then in the past in history would have been things like wooden shacks where the farmers and peasants were living. That's my kind of vision of the palace of the king at the top. And I think there's three types of responses that we can have to this call to enter the palace of the king. The first one is that we might actually be from the other castle across the valley who's the enemy. And if we're from the enemy castle, if we're an enemy of God, then we know that the king is going to get on his war horse with his sword and his arrows, and he's going to meet out destruction in the fields between the castles. And so if that is you, then you need to hear the call to enter the palace of the king. Or the other thing might be that we've 
heard the call to enter the palace and we've come to the city of the king. But the streets are really steep and they're kind of muddy and mucky and we are struggling through the muck as we're going up. And we might have even forgotten the destination at the top of the hill because of how difficult it is as we go up the hill. And so if that's you, then you need to be reminded that your destination is not the muck in the street, but your destination is reaching that palace on top of the hill. So you look to the palace, know that that's your eternal destination, and know that that's where King Jesus is waiting for you. And let that give you the strength to go through what you have at the moment. And the third type of person might come into the city of the king and then see that actually these little peasant shacks look quite good. They've got some food and beds. I might just make my home here. And then you might think, oh, well, that's nice, but there's these little stone houses. They're kind of ramshackle, but that's nice. And actually, this is really comfortable. I'm going to make my home here. But if that's you, if you're at the stage of your life where you feel more comfortable than you've ever been, then I want to remind you not to settle and make your home at the bottom of the hill. Because your destination as well is the palace at the top of the hill. And that's where you'll find true joy and true gladness. So don't settle for the things in this life. And then finally in our psalm, we come to verse 17 at the end. And we hear about the king, that the nations will praise the king forever and ever. So the call today is to come and join in with the people from every tribe, tongue and nation and come and praise the king in his ivory palaces. Let's pray together. King Jesus, you are worthy of praise in the heavenly places forever and ever. And we do look forward to a day when we can enter into this joy and gladness and be able to spend eternity with you. We look forward to that day when you will make an end to the injustices in the world where you will make all things right. And thank you that although we were your enemies, that you have made a way for us, that through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that there's a way for us to share in your perfection. Thank you that you clothe us with a splendor that we don't deserve. It's only because of your grace and your love that you give us your clothes. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and on the palace so that we would live in a way that reflects the reality of eternity. And as we go towards this palace, help us to invite others to come as well and enter the palace of the King. Father, we can only come before your throne today because of what Jesus has done. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.